0: Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Malcolm Smith to discuss his book, Hats, A Very Unnatural History. Thanks for tuning in. As Martin Harper, the Global Conservation Director of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, puts it, Hats, a very unnatural history, is a remarkable book that documents the impact of our obsession with hats on the natural world. It outlines how the global trade in fur and feathers evolved and the damage it caused, and highlights how heroic campaigners brought about reform, which in many cases aided recovery of species whose existence was threatened. It is a timely reminder of the consequences of consumerism and why radical changes are needed so our own species learns to live in harmony with nature. I'm pleased to welcome Malcolm Smith to the show from his home in Wales. Malcolm is a biologist, a former chief scientist, and deputy chief executive at the Countryside Council for Wales, and a former board member of the Environmental Agency, Europe's largest environmental regulator for England and Wales. He's the author of four previous books, including Plowing a New Furrow, a blueprint for wildlife-friendly farming. Malcolm, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. That's good, Kurt. Thanks very much. Uh, Nice to be with you. Yeah, uh, as I just read in your bio, you have a lot of experience in conservation and environmental policy. Even so, you know, for folks who think about animal rights, I think that hats is a kind of surprising topic for book-length treatment. How did you end up focusing on the history of headwear?
1: Well, to be honest, completely by accident. I did know something about uh, the fact that there had been a big international trade in feathers for decorating hats, but I knew nothing about it, and I knew even less about hats, of course. I know a lot more now. Uh, But at the time, I had read or heard some statement about 200 million birds a year being killed, internationally, of course, at the peak of the trade, which was in the sort of late 19th century. And I thought, 200 million a year, that surely can't be right. Size so was too much, too big. So I looked into that and I found that it was correct. In fact, it might well be an underestimate of the numbers killed because it doesn't actually allow for all the birds that were shot and got away and probably died in the bushes nearby or birds left in nests, young birds left in nests to die of starvation when the adults were shot for the feathers. So it's probably an underestimate. And the more I looked into it, the more I started to realize that the trade was massive. And it was centered on London. The international trade moved out of London. And also at the same time, something else I hadn't realized was that the actual base of hats for men and for women is actually made from animal fur. I would assumed it was always made from wool. And of course, some of the cheapest hats historically were always made from wool but more expensive hats were made from things, species like rabbits, hares, and the, the most expensive hats were made from beaver fur. And of course, beavers in both Europe, uh, the European beaver, and in the States and Canada, were driven almost to the brink of extinction. And the main reason for that was the collection of
0: their pelts
1: for the fur
0: to make hats. I want to talk more about the process of how you turn an animal into a hat, but I wonder if we could could dig into the origins of the industry you're talking about. I mean, by the 19th century, as you're saying, it's millions of birds, it's millions of beavers and other creatures that are being converted into clothing. How did this all start? How did we start adorning our heads with animal products?
1: Well, it's very difficult to know historically because a lot of the materials that we probably used for hats were natural materials, furs and, of course, plant materials, uh, and they don't last very long. So there there are very few existing hats that are in existence from way back thousands of years ago. There is one, the oldest hat that's uh, actually been found uh, is about five thousand year old, and it was found uh, on a hunter preserved in ice in the uh, european Alps and He died about five thousand years ago from a um, an arrow in his shoulder, which caused him to bleed to death when his uh, preserved body was found, he had a hat on, and it was a very simple hat made of stitched together pieces of brown bear skin with the fur on the outside and some people started thinking, well, perhaps that was commonplace to have such a hat. But in fact, when other bodies have been found preserved uh, in peat, for instance, which is a good preservative, and that several bodies have been found in Scandinavia, in Germany, uh, that are a couple of thousand years old or more, and they either didn't have hats, most of them, or if they did have a hat, it was usually made from cattle or sheep fur. So. They were farming sheep and cattle and other animals too well before 5,000 years ago. And probably it was far more dangerous to try and kill a brown bear, which could obviously be tricky, to say the least, and easier to get your hat from the, the leather that you could make from sheepskin or cattle skin. So those were the earliest hats. and there were There is some evidence, but only from drawings and other Artifacts of hats that are earlier than that, but most of those seem to be uh, made of plant material. And of course, plant material doesn't last very long, so we have no existing ancient uh, plant material hats. But a lot of people in the world would probably have worn earlier hats of uh, plant material, straw and so on, other plant fibers, in order to just to keep the sun off their heads, whereas in more northern climates, People were you probably using furs more often, whether from domesticated animals or from animals they were even to able to trap
0: and uh, trap and then kill. In the book, you speculate a bit about that hunter's bearskin hat and the the notion that it might even that many years ago have already been a kind of class indicator or a status symbol. That the garments have a cultural function in addition to whatever utilitarian function they might have
1: yeah that's true and and probably right through the ages and in into the middle ages and more recently hats in a sense have uh, indicated the the sort of social status of many people and the, there were laws that were passed in in many european countries sumptuary laws in the middle ages that uh, banned uh, ordinary people from wearing beaver skin hats. I mean, they were reserved for the upper echelons of society. In fact, they were the only people who could afford them anyway, because they would be much more expensive. And the ordinary people were only able to buy hats made out of wool, or possibly, if they
0: could afford them, rabbit fur. I wonder if you could say a little bit about how birds enter into this, because there is, you know, the kinds of hats you're talking about. They might, they might indicate, you know, I'm a hunter, or I have, I have some uh, enough capital to buy an expensive product like a beaver, a beaver hat. But it doesn't seem like you can make a utilitarian hat out of bird feathers. What is, what, do, what are feathers used for in in hat making?
1: Well, feathers weren't used, obviously, as a a functional attribute because uh, they added no value in terms of protecting your head against rain or against sunshine. So uh, most of the hats, early hats, were probably very utilitarian just to protect the head. But they started getting decoration on them from probably somewhere around the 10th, 11th, 12th century in, in Europe at the time, particularly in the sort of cultural centers of Europe, cities like Vienna growing up, and Prague, and Paris, of course, uh, where the the richer people there were able to start decorating their hats. And there's a lot of information about ostrich feathers being imported. Ostriches were being hunted and killed on a big scale already by them in in North Africa and in the Middle East, and feathers were starting to adorn a few hats. And the military also uh, took up Feathers. I mean, many of the most senior ranks in the military in the, the European countries were starting to decorate their hats with feathers, mostly with ostrich feathers, but other feathers were starting to come in as well. And of course, there is also, they're not hats, but there is, there is a very long tradition of using feathers to adorn one's head in many, many cultures. Think of the, the Mayan civilization in Central America, where The uh, elite, again, of society only, wore particular hats made of feathers from uh, a a range of birds that were uh, very colorful, lived in the jungles of uh, Central America. And then, of course, um, you have the the Plains Indians, indigenous uh, um, uh, Indians of, of North America. The Plains Indians wore very large headdresses. Uh, and those were eagle feathers, but of course they, they uh, because of their much more sustainable way they lived, they actually took those, cut those feathers from young eagles in the nests of um, mostly golden eagles and uh, bald eagles in the States and adorned their headdresses with those. So there's a very long tradition um, in many parts of the world and if you Think of New Guinea and and the birds of paradise there, a lot of native people in New Guinea have used adornment of feathers on their heads uh, in rituals and dances and so on for thousands of years. So it goes back a long, long way.
0: I wonder if we could return just briefly to a point that you mentioned earlier, because I'm sort of struck by two things. There's how does one turn an animal into a hat? What does it take to make that happen? And then also, you know, branching out from that, how does our desire to use animals to make into hats affect the way that we interact with the animal population? Let's come to the second question a little bit later. What, you know, for thinking about 19th century English hats, what does it take to turn a rabbit or a beaver into a top hat?
1: Well, initially it was a very dangerous process, and a lot of people were, were. A lot of people's health was damaged as a result. I mean, there was a lot of physical work, often using children as as cheap labour. And the the first stage of of the hat making was to get the the pelt of the animal. Let's suppose it was a beaver, and to take off the the coarse outer guard hair on the the beaver's fur, or any other animal for that matter because that hair was too coarse to be used and then that would leave the the soft under fur still attached to the skin so that was shaved off with a a specially shaped knife Uh, and then the fur was then uh, settled onto a surface and made to form a mat of fur which was then pieces of that fur were put between paper and pressed with rollers by hand and dipped into very acidic water. Sulfuric acid was added to the hot water, and children's hands went in in order to put these pieces of of forming felt into the the water, the hot water, and it it damaged their hands very badly. Uh, And then this process was repeated and repeated until a felt started forming, because what happens with felt from fur is that the pieces of fur align in different directions, crossing over and crossing over, uh, and form a very, very tough fabric, which has to be then dipped into the the acidic water in order to wet it, and then rolled periodically. And eventually, that would be made into a kind of witch's hat shape, a, a primitive hat shape. Uh, and later on, that process was uh, was more mechanized by uh, forming a metal uh, a shape of a hat, and the felt was actually put over it in order to shape it. So the felt was gradually built up by this process of wetting and rolling, and eventually the fibers would all mat together. That's the great thing about hatting felt. It, it doesn't have a weft and a, and a weave in it, so you can't rip it down one line because it's formed in all sorts of directions, it's extremely tough and it's quite weather resistant. So you gradually build that up, build it up into a rough hat shape like a witch's hat, and then you would then form it again by wetting it over a pre-made wooden shape of whatever hat you wanted to make. So those were carpenters made these wooden forms, the shape of the hat whatever the final shape was going to be say a top hat or a derby or whatever it was going to be and the actual felt was then formed over this and pressed down firmly in order to get the shape of the hat now this process became mechanized of course in this sort of 18th well probably early 19th century onwards but until then it was very dangerous and because one of the things that was done to encourage the felt to form was to brush it with a mercury salt. And that helped the fur to form into this matted felt. But of course, the mercury got into the atmosphere. People breathed it in and suffered from what was called Matt Hatter's disease, uh, which was really very debilitating. And many people had to retire from work still with the disease. And there's no cure, basically mercury poisoning. Uh, and it figures, uh, of course, prominently more than anywhere else in uh, the stories of Alice in Wonderland uh, and the author of Alice in Wonderland whose real name was Charles Dodgson was actually brought up as a boy in uh, a suburb of Manchester, which was where the the center of the hat making trade in the UK at the time. And so he would have seen the so-called Mad Hatters every day probably. And he wrote one into the story of Alice in Wonderland.
0: I think it's really important to emphasize how dangerous this work was, you know, fatal for the animals involved, but also dangerous for the people doing it. You talked you have mad hatter's disease that you're talking about, also they were inhaling particulate matter from the from the animal hair
1: yeah the the animal hair itself, the fur would cause a sort of bronchitic bronchitic uh, reaction in their lungs so People coughed and got diseases that way. Probably died young from that, uh, as well as the mercury poisoning. So it was a, a pretty awful atmosphere. But when, of course, uh, the about in the late 19th century, when all of this had gone over to um, away from manual work uh, and machinery had been involved in it, uh, the, the mercury. Uh, use was stopped because of the uh, presumed effects of it, although that was very late being stopped in the States particularly. And um, the, uh, a lot of the people that were working in the industry early on died young. But of course, today the, the process is, is uh, highly mechanized and uh, much safer.
0: You're listening to the MSU Press podcast. I'm here with Malcolm Smith discussing his book, Hats, A Very Unnatural History. Let's turn now to thinking a little bit about what the human desire to adorn our bodies with animal, you know, flesh and feathers and fur uh, does to animal populations. One of the things that we were sort of getting to a bit earlier when we were thinking about different classes of folks who, you know, you you might be able to afford a beaver pelt hat or the ruler might be able to have birds of, you know, this particular kind of feather. That led to a kind of environmental management—you know, laws about who could kill which kinds of birds. Could you say a little bit about how the culture of hat wearing affected uh, human interactions with the environment?
1: Well, it, it, in in lots of different ways. First of all, uh, I mean, the the depletion of both species of beaver was enormous, uh, and they were driven virtually to extinction in Europe, and they are only just coming back into many parts of Europe. They're still not common at all in the UK and haven't been reintroduced fully here. In the States, of course, the recovery of uh, American beavers has been much higher. But the the whole uh, beaver industry in, in the US and, and what was to become the US and in Canada caused uh, huge human problems, Uh, They were using the indigenous uh, Indian tribes to collect, uh, trap, and kill beavers across Canada and into the northern U.S. in particular. And that caused a lot of problems between the different uh, tribes of indigenous Americans, a lot of fighting, a lot of killing. And, of course, they were being traded in, the pelts were being traded in for guns, and for ammunition and knives and all sorts of things. Uh, So it caused a a lot of social problems and criminality uh, in in the northern part of the U.S. and Canada at that time. It was also um, the the basis of the Canadian economy and everything early on in in what would become Canada uh, was measured in uh, monetary terms against the beaver pelt. So one beaver pelt was the unit of currency for some years, and the Canadian economy was built on the basis of beaver pelt. And millions of them were exported uh, over many years uh, back to Britain. This this um, went on for such a, a long time that it eventually waned, because beavers, not because People didn't want beaver hats, but because beavers were dying out and it was almost impossible to get any. And the ones that you could find, of course, were going to co- cost a lot of money and they priced themselves out of the market and turned to uh, other materials such as uh, much more uh, hare and rabbit and also coypew fur and the furs of other animals as well.
0: Yeah, and it was sort of it, it was sort of a meticulous process whereby they they were making hats that had different layers with the beaver on top and the rabbit on the bottom to preserve some sort of sense of finery or luxury. Yeah. You know, I think it's really amazing to to think about an entire nation's economy built on the back of, you know, a water dwelling rodent. Mm. Um did, was it just was it just clothing that we were making out of beavers? Were they being eaten? Were they being used for other things in addition to? Or was it really the case that the fashion industry had that much uh, pull?
1: No, no, certainly it was the fashion industry that uh, millinery industry across the world uh, that that was the major outlet. I mean, I think beaver beaver flesh could be eaten and probably was eaten by quite a lot of, of Native Americans at the time, but the, the, the value of the beaver was entirely almost in its, in its pelt. And um, there's an interesting thing that they also got Indigenous um, Americans doing at the time, which was when they had a, a, a whole set of pelts, they would stitch them together into a, a very rough uh, coat uh, and then pay people to wear these, with the fur side against their skin, and they'd wear them for about a year. The smell must have been horrendous, uh, but they were paid to do it. And the virtue of this was that after about a year, most of the tough guard hairs from the beaver's fur would be worn off by just by friction against the wearer's body. And by the time that the, the uh, belts were then taken off, uh, all the guard hairs had been removed, which meant that the, the actual fur, the under fur, uh, was obvious. And it, the, the pelts that had had the guard hair taken up were much more valuable than ones that didn't. So they were particularly sought after. But it's a, a really strange way of doing it. But it worked.
0: When, when did folks start to wonder about the impact of all of this harvesting to, to make clothing and hats and things?
1: Well, nobody ever did start, uh, as far as we know. Nobody ever started a campaign uh, to protect beavers, uh, and in fact, a lot of mammals, uh, such as beavers and many others like sable and uh, martins that were used for fur, partly for hats, partly for clothing, uh, were never protected until very much more recent times. But the the, the process of trying to get uh, feathers banned was started in the late 1800s both in Manchester in the UK and coincidentally in Boston Massachusetts so by Victorian ladies who suddenly started campaigning in order to stop the carnage that was going on because the carnage uh, was on such a, a scale uh, that they they balked at it in in stark comparison to the vast majority of Victorian ladies who desperately wanted more and more exotic feathers on their hats.
0: I wonder if we could talk about those campaigns. Like what is the, is it that people didn't know? I mean, it's interesting that you say that the anti-plumage campaign started near Manchester. Didn't you say earlier that that's sort of nearby centers of manufacturing? So were they seeing bird carcasses or nearby manufacturing facilities?
1: No, I don't think so. They were they were just seeing that, uh, you know, in, nobody in Victorian times went out of doors without wearing a hat. And well-to-do ladies, obviously, were able to afford the very best. So the base of their hats were usually made of beaver fur, and then they were decorated, they might have been decorated with some obviously large uh, ostrich feathers. Sometimes they had Uh, a whole um, set of uh, beautiful uh, gossamer thin uh, feathers draped over from egrets uh, the nuptial plumes of of egrets that had been the egrets had been shot just to get their breeding plumes nothing else and they might have a set of hummingbirds on their hat two or three hummingbirds often wired on to make them look as if they were moving as the as the wearer moved along i mean they the quantity of birds on some people's, uh, some ladies' hats was was quite uh, incredible. Uh, there was there's a famous case of um, one of the leading ornithologists of the day in the States walking along purposely, going along some of the uh, the big uh, the uptown shopping districts in New York in about um, I think it was about 19, just after 1900, uh, and he was a very uh, knowledgeable ornithologist. Uh, obviously, he wouldn't go there to to look for a wide range of birds, but he counted 40 species just in an afternoon. Of course, where were they? They were on ladies' hats, all of them dead, uh, a huge range. Even some ladies were were wearing owl heads on their hats. I mean, it was quite incredible. So I think the the, the few people that were concerned about this started campaigning and built up a gradual campaign, whereas most of the uh, well-to-do Victorian ladies were were aghast at the campaign. And it took many, many years in order to get legislation to try and ban the importation of feathers or to stop using even uh, feathers from birds in their own countries. It took a long time, uh, and it built up very slowly.
0: I want to emphasize your description of some of these hats, because I feel like you know, when, when you tell someone now, you know, a feather in your cap, or, you, you know, you think about we used to use bird feathers to decorate hats. Like, yeah, that is true, but I'm looking at some of the illustrations in the book and some of the photographs, and it's it's, as you say, it's whole birds, it's whole bird wings, you know, parts of animals, obviously identifiable as what they are, but not just necessarily sort of abstracted decorative feathers. So you can sort of see why some of those ladies might have found it Kind of grotesque to be walking down the street, and there, you know, suddenly here comes a disembodied bird wing coming at you on someone else's head. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we could explore the reaction to the to the campaigns a little bit more. How did people uh, react when when folks started saying that maybe this wasn't the best idea for you know, human behavior?
1: Well, the, the millinery industry, of course, which did employ a lot of people, reacted very forcibly against any move to uh, restrict the, the feathers they could use, whether they were from the country of origin or from any country internationally. And the trade centered on London, and, and the, the quantities were just incredible. I, I found out that uh, in one statement, in the first quarter of the year 1885, 3 quarters of a million egret skins were sold in London auctions and in 1887 just 2 years later a single london dealer uh, was was confirmed to be handling 2 million of them i mean the the quantities were enormous and of course the campaigners zoomed in on this and um and tried to tried to say that um, th- this is going to, not surprisingly, lead to the extinction of lots of different birds around the world. And it was heading that way. In fact, some probably went extinct before they were even discovered because the millinery industry wasn't very bothered about what species they were. If, a, if it was a pretty-looking, very colorful hummingbird, that's fine. We'll just call it the hummingbird which does make it very difficult to work out what species they were actually using because they didn't differentiate. As long as it was colorful, plenty of feathers, that's fine. Everybody wanted them. So the quantities of hummingbirds coming in to the London auctions and then going out from there to the U.S. and to other countries in Europe was was enormous. I mean, millions of um, hummingbirds were coming in over the years. Uh, and some of those might have been species we've we've never actually recorded, so we don't know that they existed, and they were lost before uh, they were ever documented. Uh, others were pretty obvious, uh, you know what what they were. I mean, you could you could identify some of the egrets clearly, uh, but of course the millinery trade wasn't bothered. And the interesting thing was that the the millinery trade tried to claim, oh, these feathers are from birds that uh, have molted. So we get the feathers after they've molted, and it's a perfectly natural process. We just pick them up. Of course, that was a lot of rubbish. I mean, they didn't do that at all. And they wouldn't do that in any case, because if they had been molted, they had been on the birds all year and would got worn and damaged, they wouldn't be prime feathers for putting on ladies' hats by any means. And the other argument they, they put forward was that uh, a lot of them you know, weren't shot, they uh, died naturally, so they were just picked up. That, of course, was rubbish also, because they couldn't possibly have got the the quantities in order to do that. So the Victorian ladies that were starting the campaign in Boston and Manchester obviously picked up on this and uh, took the, um, the millinery industry to task. But it's very interesting socially to try and understand what the... Uh, the ladies who wore these hats, actually where where the ladies that got these hats, thought the feathers were coming from. I mean, did they think they were from birds that had died naturally? Or did they think they were moulted feathers? Uh, or did they realize that birds were being shot on an enormous scale in order to get these feathers? And did they care?
0: The question of scale is such a fascinating one because, as you, I mean, it's one thing to be in London and to you and your friends have a have a couple of hats, you know, but then to think of it, you know, this is a global trade, right? These are being exported all over the world, as far as Asia and and everywhere else. Yeah, if I give you another
1: example, Kurt Trinidad, the island of Trinidad exported fifteen thousand hummingbirds every week in the late eighteen hundreds. I mean, you wonder whether there would be any hummingbirds left uh, on um, on Trinidad at that rate, and of course, a lot of them probably declined, and you know it, it's it's uh, and some of the birds were driven very close to extinction, most of the egrets, like you have snow egrets, great whites, and so on in the states, most of those were shot out completely they breed in very large colonies in trees, most of those um colonies were shot out and and the uh the hunters employed by the military trade actually had to then move south into central america and south america and start killing off the colonies there in order to get their breathing feathers
0: what what are some of the other species that were you know devastated driven to extinction or otherwise uh, decimated by our uh desire for hats
1: well apart from um beavers of course the the uh Uh, The the sea otter found up in um, the northern Pacific uh, was decimated. It's historically been uh, trapped and used by uh, the Arctic peoples in order to use its fur because it has very dense, very warm fur, so it can be used for hats and for other parts of garments. Uh, But then, of course, hunters from other parts of the world started realizing that uh, this could be, a very useful uh, fur that that they could obtain so when when other hunters from outside from various parts of the world went to the north pacific they almost annihilated the the um, the species there there were probably nobody knows exactly how many there were but there were probably hundreds of thousands of them and today they're down to a few thousand i mean they're holding their own but they've never recovered entirely from from the assault by hunters in other parts of the world, the, the ostrich, of course, the ostrich feathers were, were famed for using on hats. They could be dyed in different colors or they could use the actual black uh, natural feathers of ostrich or the white wing feathers of the ostrich on, on hats. And they were used on an enormous scale. And the, they were hunted to extinction across North Africa, uh, hunted to extinction in the Middle East, And so their range today is extremely restricted, mostly to South Africa, the very southern part of Africa. And if ostriches hadn't started to be farmed about 1870, and farming continues today of ostriches, of course, but if if that hadn't happened, there's probably very little doubt that the ostrich, two different species of ostriches were used, would have been driven completely to extinction. We would not have an ostrich in the world if uh, farming ostriches hadn't begun and of course once they were farmed then the feathers could be obtained from them um there so that saved the ostrich but lots of other species declined enormously but many have recovered i mean remarkably so several species of egret across the world in in asia southern asia uh, southern europe and in the uh, the us and central america Uh, They were decimated, literally, because they could be shot on their nests, and the youngsters in their nests just left to die. And uh, there are plenty of records of that. Uh, But they have bounced back, uh, remarkably so, and they're now possibly even more common than they were originally, believe it or not. Although it doesn't apply everywhere, because uh, the Chinese egret, which is another white egret uh, found, of course, in Southeast Asia, has never bounced back, and they were were um, shot and uh, tracked on a large scale for hats again for their courtship feathers, which are very showy uh, and uh, Chinese egrets were decimated and they 've just about holding their own at the moment at about two thousand in number but that 's a war and they haven't made a comeback uh, that's for other reasons probably such as pollution and a lot of their wetland sites being uh, changed in character and uh, intensive farming and so on but nevertheless you know there are several species around the world that have recovered and there are some that have not recovered uh, from the uh, assault on them
0: did the anti plumage campaign efforts uh, that we were discussing earlier did they have any effect on the international trade on the the status of the law et cetera
1: yeah the, it they did they, particularly the the one started by Harriet Hemingway in Boston, and she started the campaign in eighteen ninety six and actually much quicker than the campaign started in Manchester in the u k which was much slower at getting any legislation, the American campaign by nineteen hundred, which is only four years away, because it, it did have a lot of support. It grew in support and it started setting up Audubon groups in every state. And Audubon today is about one point I think it's one point two million members across the US. You know, it's a it's a big conservation body. And by nineteen hundred the Lacey Act was passed by Congress. Uh, but that that stopped a lot of the trade internally within the US, but it didn't stop uh, bird skins and feathers being imported into the U.S. from further afield. And of course, they, once the Lacey Act had been passed, a lot of the military trade then gave up with American birds because they couldn't use those. So they went uh, and bought them at the international auctions in, in London and imported feathers. And it took until 1918, really, to get that stopped. And that was the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which you still have on the statute book there. Uh, and that stopped the international trade. But of course, by 1918, a lot of things had changed socially, and the uh, the First World War, 1914 to 18, so many people being killed, it just didn't seem right for uh, well-to-do or any other ladies to be walking around with a whole set of flamboyant feathers in their hats. It seemed very out of place, and hat styles changed a lot because of the First World War and went much plainer and simpler. So feathers started going out anyway, and plainer, simpler hats came in. And also around that time, of course, there was a big social change. The motor car became, started to become much more common, especially uh, in the States with Ford and so on. And, and a hat the size of uh, you know what what's sometimes called a small coffee table on the top of your head with feathers uh, on top of it again, uh, did not seem uh, to fit very well with sitting in a car going along, albeit at not much speed, with the wind blowing the feathers and the hat possibly coming off the lady's head. So fashion changed uh, because of the motor car and the motor car became a much more sought after fashion icon than flying flamboyant hats did so that intervened as well so it wasn't just the legislation that changed the fashions it was social changes that came in at the same time roughly
0: nevertheless i mean one thing i think we i'd like to move on to as we begin to conclude the conversation is to think about how this persists you know when we still use animal products in, in hat wear today. We have leather hats, wool hats, et cetera. What is the status of the industry now? Well, now the industry only
1: uses hats that are obtained from farmed animals. So they're using uh, feathers from uh, birds such as cockerels, chickens, um, farmed ostriches, duck, uh, pheasants, and so on, which are farmed. And they're, they're killed for meat, uh, for eating and the feathers are a kind of byproduct. And there is so much now ability to dye and change the shape of these feathers that um, milliners today tell me that they've got a huge range of, of uh, feathers they can use in hats, and, and frequently do, because feathers are still extremely popular. And the, uh, the major uh, milliners um, that I've spoken to are perfectly happy having a much more sustainable industry, which they they have welcomed, uh, and uh, treat this extremely seriously. That they made big mistakes in the distant past, uh, and today they're using uh, sustainable uh, products in order to uh, make their hats and adorn them with feathers. But in the in in many parts of the world, of course, particularly in the Arctic North, furs are still being used. Uh, from sometimes from trapped animals and sometimes from farmed animals, in order to make uh, warm clothing. Because research has shown that even though clothing can be made, synthetic clothing, which is very insulating, nothing is as insulating as some of the furs that are used. Caribou fur, for instance, which uh, traditionally was made into parkas with you know the the hoods attached, uh, which were the warmest thing anybody can possibly wear were made of two layers of caribou one layer with the fur against your skin the outer layer with the fur on the outside to slow down the the wind cooling effect and caribou fur like all deer fur is extremely insulating so in the in the northern climes where uh, it's essential to wear very warm hats a lot of furs are are still used uh, my argument would be well uh, can we not go over to using synthetic Garments uh, and and not be killing uh, a lot, trapping and killing wild animals and farming some of the animals. Because although there are published standards for farming of some of these uh, wild animals, whether they are stick to these standards or not, uh, many people argue in in the animal welfare lobby that they don't, and these animals shouldn't be factory farmed. And I don't see, quite honestly, really any argument today for for trapping and killing wild animals in order to use them for hats when there are plenty of, of uh, synthetic fur alternatives that can match any um, traditional fur to look at. And there are many synthetic garments which are almost equally uh, insulating as, as natural fur is.
0: What can the consumer do if, you, you know, if we're concerned about uh, the exploitation of animals for the clothing that we wear?
1: Well, I think probably join some of the animal welfare, um, many animal welfare organizations that exist around the world, some very big ones. They are constantly lobbying uh, the fur industry in order to try and uh, reduce it, its impact. That's having some effect because a lot of um, clothing designers today are shying away from using animal furs. But the, having said that, the fur industry is still booming. Particularly apparently now in China and Russia with increasing wealth in those countries uh, uh, the market has moved there i mean it's moved largely away from the u s and Europe, although a lot of people are still buying real furs there too um, so you can join one of the animal welfare groups i suppose and and um, you know use their strength in order to lobby the the industry and also to lobby governments to try and either Get much higher standards of animal welfare if they're going to continue with animal farming or get it banned in the countries uh, where those governments can act.
0: With that, we're just about out of time. Before we go, I want to say thanks so much to you, Malcolm, for joining us today. I've learned so much from your book, and I think it's such a fascinating look at something that is overlooked. Uh, easily, you know, kind of pushed to the side to really dive deep into this complicated relationship. And I enjoyed learning about it and and hearing about it from you today.
1: Well, thanks very much, Kurt, for
0: asking me. I think we've had a nice conversation. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Malcolm Smith's book, Hats, A Very Unnatural History, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can find Malcolm at Dr. Malcolm Smith on Twitter. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Mill. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Mediha Gross, Kylene Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.